Good morning, Genesis Church. Good morning. Hey, hello to those of you that are tuning in with us online. You can't see it, but there are people spread all over the room, and it is awesome. We had a little debate on whether or not we should, like, leave the greeting time, and I just love to see you guys get up and move around the room, so thanks for doing that. Uh, it's, it's important that we get to see each other and, and connect to one another, so thanks for joining us today. If you're new or visiting, my name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Carmel, and we would love to help you get connected to the life of this church and help you take a next step spiritually, so as Kevin said, fill out that connection card or meet us at the blue tent in the lobby after service. If you're online, you can drop us a comment today or email us at info at genesischurch.me. We would love to follow up with you as well. So to those of you that are in the room, I know it's good to be here. Many of you are probably like my family. You've been cooped up because of all the snow and it's good to be out. So thanks for braving the weather to be here with us today. Um, about a week or so ago, I was picking my son up from practice after school and I had this fun light show up on my dashboard right? Everybody knows what that means. That means at least one of my tires is running a little low if I'm lucky, right? So I thought, no big deal. It's been cold. I'll air the tires up. We'll be fine. Well, I got home, got out of my truck, and I, this is what I heard. Yeah, that's, that's when you're like, oh, this is, this is legit. So I walked over and there was a little bitty staple. And I thought, I wonder if I pull it out, if it would seal itself. And it went, and I was like, this is bad. This is bad. But here's the good news. It was getting dark. It was 12 degrees and I had a meeting in an hour. So I wasn't in any rush. There was no, I wasn't upset about it at all. You don't realize how dependent you are on the air in your tires until it's running out. You realize I'm going to be stranded if I don't fix this really quick. But it's not just the air in our tires. There's some basic things in life. For instance, water. We live in an area where water is readily available to us, right? We all have water bottles. We take them with us. But every once in a while, you'll get stuck somewhere without water, right? You didn't bring your water bottle. You don't have a wallet to buy water. There's no water fountains in sight, and you're parched. And some of you are thinking right now, I need a glass of water. Feel free. Get up. Go to the lobby. Do your thing, right? But you don't think about it until you think, oh, it's in, it's in short supply. Here's another one. Time, Right? It's easy for us to assume we've got all the time that we need. We've got time to plan, time to do our thing, except on the day of the big test, you're like, I didn't take advantage of my time. My time is gone. I'm out of time. Or if you're like my family, there's a debate on what on time is. My wife likes to be right on time, which is fine. I like to be early. But if you don't plan accordingly, what happens? You're 20 minutes late and everybody's frazzled. You don't think about it until you're out of it. But I've got one that's worse than time and worse than water. Have you ever been stuck in a situation like this? <laughs> right? Like, that's bad. You get down to this, there's not a lot to work with there. And that's, you're just, your world's, it's dangerous, right? To say the least. I heard a story about a friend of mine who went hunting with some buddies. And he was out in the middle of the woods when nature called and he didn't have any toilet paper. And he came back to camp missing part of his sleeve, right? <laughs> there are some things in life that you don't want to run out of. But here's a question. What do you do when you run out of joy? What do you do when, when your joy is in short supply? What do you do when the passion for your work starts to fail you? What happens when your faith starts to falter and you start to question things that have always, you've always believed them to be true? What do you do then? What do you do when your security is shaken and anxiety starts to take hold or depression sets in and you start to lose your will to live. Those are really, really, really important things that you don't ever want to run out of. Now, today we're gonna to continue in our year, year long study through the gospel of John. 
by looking at John chapter 2 today, a story in John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you right now to turn to John chapter 2. Now, this is a familiar story. You've probably heard of this story before if you've never actually heard it. It's, it's the miracle at the wedding in Cana where Jesus changes water into wine. And here's what we know. Jesus and his new disciples, they show up at this wedding in a little town called Cana. And shortly after they get there, they are told, we're out of wine. Now, what's the worst that can happen if you're at a wedding and you run out of wine? Maybe the party slows down a little bit. Maybe things tend to get a little bit lame. But what's the worst that could happen? Well, it's hard for us to understand, but in ancient Israel, wine was one of those things you never, ever, ever wanted to run out of at a wedding. And it's easy for us when we read this story, when we study this story to think, oh, this is a, this is a story of Jesus's power to do, to do miracles. And the miracle is amazing. But what we're going to see, what John's going to tell us is actually the miracle is pointing to something much bigger. Yes, appreciate the miracle of water to wine, but there's some things that we need to learn about Jesus that shape the way that we view him and the way that we follow him. And so I wanna invite you to pray with me. We're gonna ask for the Holy Spirit's help to guide us through this story that for some of us is so familiar, you could tell me all the details, but I want a fresh set of eyes for us to see it today. Or maybe you're gonna hear this story for the very first time today. And my prayer is that God would teach you something about who Jesus is. So would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful to be able to gather together here today. We're thankful that you've kept us safe in the, the mess of the weather these last few days. It is good to be here. It is good to sing to you, Jesus. And so we want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for your word. I'm thankful for this story. I'm thankful that it's a familiar story. I'm thankful that your power is revealed in this story, Jesus. But I also believe that there's a bigger point that you want us to see and to grasp. So Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to learn what we need to learn so we can live the way you want us to live in obedience and in faith to you, Jesus? Please reveal yourself to us in a new and fresh way. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the story begins in John chapter 2, verse 1, like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, weddings are a very big deal. You can't argue that. You don't have to be the bride and groom to know that. Weddings are a very big deal, right? And if you just attend the wedding, it's gonna cost you maybe three or four hours. If you're in the wedding party, it's gonna cost you a day or two of preparation leading up to. If you're part of the family, there's months of planning. There's lots of money that's spent. And then that last week, it's like a mad dash to get to the wedding, right? Weddings are a really big deal. And the same thing was true in ancient Israel. Just like we do, they would announce a wedding weeks or months in advance, and we invite friends and family, they would do that too, but they lived in villages. And it was common for an entire village to attend the wedding. It was a huge celebration. And even people from other villages would come over as well. And while there's a lot of similarities between weddings then and weddings now, here's something that we do need to appreciate. Weddings for us are like, you know, a couple of hours on a given day. For them, a wedding celebration would go for several days, if not an entire week. Now, some of us get bent out of shape when we have to give up a Saturday afternoon for a few hours. Can you imagine taking a week of vacation to go to someone's wedding? These were huge celebrations. They were especially important among those that were poor because they were parties, they were celebrations. It was a time to dance, a time to sing. There were lots of amazing food and lots and lots of wine, or at least there was supposed to be. Look at verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I just wanna address 
the really obvious, awkward tension. Whose fault is this? It's obviously the groom's fault, right? He was clearly given one job. We don't know this. It's not written there, but guys, you know this. This is what this guy was told to do. And he was like, ah, we'll get there when we get there, right? And he didn't get there. Now, we don't know that. We don't know why they're out of wine. But what we do know is Jesus' mother says they're out of wine. Now, why? Why is she involving Jesus? Why is this an issue for them? Jesus didn't officiate the wedding from what we could tell. He and his disciples, they were just there. They were just there to participate in the wedding. Well, there's a couple of theories. Some people believe that this could have been a relative of Jesus. And if that's true, it's possible that Mary may have been on the planning committee for the wedding. And so we can't overstate the stress in her voice when she comes to Jesus and she's like, there is no more wine, okay? That there, there is some definite tension in her voice. But here's why this is such a big deal. In, an, in ancient Israel, at a Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential. It was expected to be there. And the goal wasn't to get blitzed. Wine was a symbol of God's blessing. Wine was a sign of, of joy. There was a saying among rabbis at that time, it went something like this, without wine, there is no joy. And some of you are nodding your head saying, I've been saying that for years. Without wine, there's no joy. joy. Wine is an important part of our culture, right? Well, wine was critical, critical at a wedding feast. And so running out of wine was a big deal. Get this, if you ran out of wine at your wedding, your guests could file a lawsuit against you. It was a sign of a lack of preparation and a lack of respect for your guests, and on top of that, these people lived in an honor and shame culture. Now, we don't, we don't necessarily get this, but in an honor and shame culture, you are either all, everything that you do either brings honor or shame to you and your family. And guess which side of the equation you wanna be on? You wanna be on the honor side of things. You always want to be honorable. But in this instance, can you imagine how horrific it would be to start your life together as a couple being shamed and being an outcast in your family? You shamed your family. You'd be an outcast in your village. You did not want to run out of wine at your wedding. And so maybe Mary had a role to play in planning. We don't know. But we, it's safe to say that Mary would have known the couple. And so when she comes up to Jesus, even if she wasn't a part of the planning, she's saying, we've got a problem on our hands. These people are in trouble. What are we going to do? They've run out of wine. And so the tensions are high. You can feel it. And look at Jesus's response back to his mother in verse four. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Anyone ever refer to their mom as woman? <laughs> I mean, I never have. And kids, I never would. But had I, oh man, it wouldn't have been like, let's wait till your dad gets home. It would have been bad news, right? And so we read this and we're like, Jesus, how dare you? Now, we know enough about Jesus's character to know he's not being disrespectful to his mother. There's something here that's lost in translation. Later in John's gospel, he's going to be hanging on a cross, dying. The same word that he uses when he says, woman, this is your son and son, this is your mother. He's speaking to John saying, please take care of my mom. Okay, so he's not being disrespectful, but he is making a point to his mother, to his disciples, and to anyone that was listening. His point is, look, I don't even live under my own authority. I do what my heavenly father tells me to do. And so right now I know that you're asking me for help, but I don't just shoot from the hip. I, I get my direction from somewhere else. But deep down you get the sense that Mary, Mary knew. I mean, Jesus is 30 years old. She would have remembered when the angel came to her and said, hey, 
you're going to give birth to the son of God. Mary knew that Jesus and God had this special connection. For 30 years, she has been waiting to see what, like, how's this gonna culminate? And so we don't know this for sure, but you get the sense that Mary kind of looked at Jesus and was like, listen, young man, I know that you're special. I've always thought that you were special. Not like normal mom special, you're special. And if there's anything at all that you can do right now, would you please just help so this couple can avoid this tragedy? But look at Jesus's response. My hour has not yet come. Now I want you to pay attention to the word hour. If you read with, with us and John for the rest of the year, you're gonna see this theme come up over and over again. My, my time has not yet come. His time has not yet come. This is crucifixion language. Somehow in his humanity, Jesus knew that God had sent him to accomplish something bigger than fixing just our immediate problem. He knew that his life was going to end by dying on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And pay attention, even in the next couple of chapters of reading, we're gonna see he begins to predict his death. So he, he was able to look past the immediate to the future. And he knew that there would be a day that when he died in our place, he would conquer sin and death. And there would be no more death or mourning or crying or shame. And all that's good. But yet his mother is looking at him and being like, hey, Jesus, pay attention. There's no more wine. This is a serious problem. But instead of pushing back, instead of starting an argument with Jesus, instead of giving him the mom look, you know, like, I'm not going to say anything, but I'm going to say everything. She respects him. Look at what she does. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now that's a whole message for a different day. If you ever want to know how to live your life, it's this, this, do what Jesus' mother said, do whatever he tells you, live in obedience and in faith in him. And this is where John, as he's telling us this story, he shifts our attention to some things that were sitting next by, nearby. Look at verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding between 20 to 30 gallons. Now I want you to pay attention here because John is gonna give us some important information, some clues about the overall meaning of the miracle that we're getting ready to read about. And it has to do with the type of jars that are used for this miracle. So first of all, these jars for ceremonial washing, they would have looked something like this. Those look pretty heavy, right? Holding 20 to 30 gallons each. Now, in Jesus's day, Jews were obsessed with this idea of ceremonial cleansing and purification. You know why? Because they knew that they had an issue with sin. They didn't pretend it wasn't a thing. They knew that sin stained their hearts, polluted their relationships with others, separated them in their relationship with God. And so these purification ceremonies would allow temporary cleansing. You could be declared spiritually clean by ceremonial washing. The problem was it was temporary. You would have to wash yourself over and over and over again, thousands of times throughout the course of your life. Now, I'm just curious. When was the last time any of us participated in a ceremonial washing ceremony like that? It's not something that we do, right? So it brings up a really good question. If they had ceremonial cleansing practices to be declared clean, how do we deal with sin? And the deeper question or the deeper reality is none of us like to be confronted with the fact that we sin. We like to avoid it. We'd rather not talk about it. We'd like to point our finger at everybody else and say, well, I'm not perfect, but have you seen this guy over here? Are you kidding me? 
We avoid it at all costs. We, we buy into things that we don't even know are leading us down a bad path. But in his letter to the church in Rome, the apostle Paul spells this out really clearly. He says, look, I want to be real clear with this. Every single human has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And no matter how we try to deal with it, Paul says, don't kid yourself. But every once in a while, we might be willing to admit, okay, you got me. I'm a sinner. I I have this area in my life that's not right. But we admit it. And here's the problem. If we don't handle it in a healthy way, we live in it. We allow it to define us. And it brings up a cycle of shame in our life. This is why the Jews were so obsessed with ceremonial washing. They wanted a way to be declared clean the same way that we do. And this is the good news. Throughout the rest of his gospel, John says, look, Jesus has come to provide the ultimate cure for our sin. And everything in his gospel is building to this point where Jesus is going to die on the cross to pay for our sins so that we can be forgiven and made right with our heavenly father. We get to step out of the cycle of shame. We, this isn't like a temporary thing. This is forever. It's, a, it's this picture of us leaving our old life behind and beginning a new life. Now, we got to see a picture of this last week when we celebrated baptisms across our two campuses. Baptism is a fascinating picture of this. It's a spiritual representation of a spiritual, uh, I'm sorry, a physical representation of a spiritual reality. When you go down into the water, you're not breathing. It represents Jesus's dead body being laid in the tomb. And just like Jesus was brought back to life, we come up out of the water. It represents a new life. We're leaving the old way behind. And believe it or not, that idea of leaving our old life behind and beginning a new life with Jesus is at the heart of this message, the heart of this story in John chapter two. Let's go back to the story, verses six and seven. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Six of these things. This is a 30 gallon garbage can. Take six of these. How long would it take to fill that up? We have hoses and spigots. It would still take a long time. Think of, think of the effort and the work that it was going to take these servants to fill these things up. Now, I did a little research. 30 gallons of water weighs close to 250 pounds. 250 pounds. And then you take that big, heavy container that you're filling up and dragging back, however they did it, times six. We're in the neighborhood of 1,800 pounds. This is a serious workout. Time is of the essence. Wine is out. These guys are hustling. They fill them all the way to the brim. Now, we don't know how long it took, but as soon as they're done, they come back to Jesus and they're huffing and they're puffing like, your water's right over there. Okay, look at what he says. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so. Now, the master of the banquet was like the master of ceremonies. This is the guy that was in charge of tasting all the food and all the wine to make sure that it was presentable. This is the guy that would have been responsible for rationing the wine in the first place. So if anybody's to blame, this is the guy. It's his job. Now, I want you to imagine you're that servant. You're one of those servants. All you know is you have fetched lots and lots, 180 gallons of water. And now this guy's like, hey, 
take some, that guy over there might need a drink. And so you dip it out and you're like, what is going on? Like, we've got a disaster and I'm taking a drink to this guy. And so you walk up and you're like, hey, excuse me. See that guy over there in the white robe and the blue sash? He used to be a carpenter. Now he's a rabbi. He thinks it's a pretty big deal. He wanted me to bring this to you. So look, I don't know what's going on, but don't be mad at me. I mean, put yourself in this guy's shoes. Nobody expects what's getting ready to happen to happen. And then in verse nine, the master of the banquet tasted the water that's been turned into wine, instantaneous. It, didn't, it takes a long time to make wine, instantaneous. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he says, come here. Everyone else brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. No one does this. But did you notice? No one knew what happened. The master of the banquet thought that the groom was up to it. The groom is oblivious. He's partying with his friends and now the party goers are like, all right, more wine and this stuff's really good too. By the way, 180 gallons of water translates to 757 bottles or boxes if you're super fancy. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. And no one knew. The only people that knew, John tells us, were Jesus's disciples. Now, I want you to pay attention to verse 11 because John says, this is more than water to wine. Look at what John says in verse 11. Now, remember, John was one of these guys. What, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the, not miracles, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is really important. We think about this as a miracle of water to wine and John says, nope, it's a sign They're the same, but they're a little different. A sign points you in a direction. A sign says, pay attention to this. Don't miss this. But here's what's really interesting. We learned this several weeks ago when we kicked this series off. The book of John can be broken down into two parts. The first 12 chapters are often referred to as the book of signs. And in the weeks to come, you're gonna see this over and over again. There was a sign, there was a sign, there was a sign, there was a sign. The signs were pointing us to who Jesus is and why he's come. And get this, the last nine chapters of the gospel of John is known as the book of glory because Jesus's glory is being revealed as the Messiah. And here in verse 11, John, this is his point. He says, the sign, as amazing as it was, points us to his glory. The sign is pointing to something bigger. The sign wasn't that the party got better. The sign wasn't that there was no shame on the couple. The sign was, pay attention. This guy is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And all of a sudden, his disciples start to believe in him because of a private miracle. But here's another amazing point. Don't miss this. I had never thought about this before. The lack of wine at this wedding is important. You know why? Because John's basically saying no wine at a wedding is a representation of a life lived apart from Jesus. No wine at this wedding is a disaster. Your life without Jesus is a disaster. Because just like those wedding guests, the universal experience for every single one of us, apart from a relationship with Jesus, is that the wine in our life, it will all run out one day. The only thing that will last will be Jesus. All the joy, all the excitement of everything else we chase will run out. And so here's the picture. A life without Jesus is like a wedding without wine. A life without Jesus is a life without joy. 
And you might think that there's joy to be found in lots of different places in life. And John says, that's not real joy. We're talking true, lasting joy. And you know, the world's going to offer us lots of wine that we can taste and sample and collect. And it, it, in our life, it looks like popularity and power and success and influence, all the things that we chase after. And here's the reality. The work that you do every day, no matter what you do, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or you're cleaning snow off the streets or you're an accountant, everything that we do matters. It's all important. But you're not meant to work forever. Your identity is not in your work. There's a bigger thing at play. The goals that we set are important. But the goals that we set they cannot give us eternal life. The success that we chase, it's so exciting. But you know what? As you get older, someone younger is going to come along and replace you. It's going to rock your world. The relationships that we value so much, they're so important. But even our health is going to fail us. None of us are going to last forever. And so there's nothing wrong with enjoying everything that life has to offer. But one of the major themes that emerges in this story as Jesus shows up at this wedding in Cana is that he is revealing a new reality for all of us. Now, the Apostle Paul summarizes this reality for us in his letter to the Corinthians. This is what he says. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has a relationship with Jesus, if anyone puts their trust in who Jesus is, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. Think back to the details of the story. What were the stone jars used for? Ritual purification. It was a ritual. It was temporary. But now we don't need ritual cleansing. Jesus has died in our place once and for all. The old is gone and now the new is here and it's better. It's permanent. When the wine ran out, Jesus didn't just shrug his shoulder and be like, ah, that's too bad. He produced 180 gallons of the best wine ever as a representation. The old has run out. The new, it's better. It's here. It's now. You know, one of the reasons I love this story, think about this. Jesus spared this couple from a life of shame. They didn't even see it coming. And throughout John's gospel, John says, pay attention. That's exactly why he has come. He wants to spare you and I from sin and shame and his disciples witnessed this with their eyes, and it was blowing their mind. John tells us in verse 11, they began to believe in him because of what they saw. But I wonder, I wonder if they were also reminded of a passage of scripture that they would have been taught from the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah, just so you know, Isaiah was a prophet. He's a man that lived 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. He's got a whole fascinating book in the Old Testament full of these prophecies. And in Isaiah 25, this is a passage that young Jewish men would have been taught. Jewish people knew this passage and it points to a wedding feast at some point in the future. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8 says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will appear, a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the, sh the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now, these guys just witnessed the miracle, but they would have also been reminded of this passage and realized, oh my goodness, the old way of doing things is, is going away. 
And this guy is ushering in something brand new, something we've never seen before. But here's what's really interesting for me. Make this personal. John was one of these men. And later in his life, he would write another book outside of the gospel of John. He's an old man. And this book is known as the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the, the New Testament, the last book of the Bible. And the book of Revelation is fascinating. It's a prophetic book that speaks of Jesus's return to this earth. And if you've never read it, here's the spoiler alert. It's terrifying. It talks about a world, if you can imagine this, where every day seems to get a little darker and things that you never thought possible start happening. And no one knows what's gonna happen next. And John paints this horrific picture of a vision that he's been given. And then in verse 19, he says, but then, then Jesus returns in power and in great glory. And in Revelation 19, 9, this declaration is made. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This wedding supper of the Lamb is the day when Jesus is united with his bride, the church. People of every nation, every tongue, every color, anyone that has devoted their faith to him. It's the day when we are reunited with Jesus. And then in Revelation 21, 4, this proclamation is made. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. Look at this. One of the last words written in scripture, for the old order of things has passed away. It's almost like Isaiah said, pay attention. This is gonna happen in the future. And then the wedding at Cana was like a small preview. And John says, this is what we're living for. There will be a day when all the mess that we deal with will be gone forever. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And it'll be life in eternity with God the way that it was meant to be. And so as you think about the story of the wedding at Cana, yes, celebrate the miracle of water to wine. It's fascinating. But I want to paint a, de a different picture for you. Picture it like this. It's a beautiful wedding banquet. This is what you and I, this is what humanity is waiting to happen. The day that Jesus returns and we will be reunited with him, we will get to see him. We will get to touch him. We will get to hear his voice. It is going to be an eternal party where we will celebrate his goodness to us. And remember, John says, blessed is anyone that's been invited. Did you get your invitation? The invitation is that you place your faith in who he is and what he has done for you. The invitation is you say, I have sinned. I have messed my life up. I am placing my faith in what you have done for me. I've got all kinds of questions, Jesus. He says, that's okay. Place your faith in me. You are invited to the day when I come and the rest of eternity will be the way I've always intended it to be. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, this is what we celebrate. If you think the joy has been sucked out of your life, find joy here. Let that joy seep out of you now. This is why we share the good news of the message of Jesus. This is why the gospel matters because one day it will all be made right. But I wanna talk to those of you that have You've received the invitation, but you're, it's just sitting there. It's unopened. You haven't decided if you're going yet or not. Scripture makes it really clear. When we leave this earth or when Jesus comes, the time is up. And it's not because he's rude or mean. It's because he's just. And right now his invitation is follow me. Trust me. Surrender to me. I love you. 
I want to see you there. And so if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, honest question, what are you waiting for? That's eternity. You can do something about it right now. If you are ready today to surrender your life to Jesus or to just start a conversation about what it looks like, I wanna invite you to meet me down front right now after service. Or if you're joining us online, you can drop us a comment, but better than that, email us at info at genesischurch.me. Take a bold step, reach out and let us know that you're there so we can follow up with you. We don't wanna convince you of anything. We're just gonna point to scripture and say, this is who Jesus says he is. This is why he has come. We would love to celebrate you opening that invitation and receiving a new life in him. The old is gone. The old is fading. This world isn't gonna make it. There's a better one waiting for us through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of this story, the imagery of this story. Jesus, I'm thankful that you stepped in and you provided for this couple in a way I don't even, they, they're just not aware of what happened. But would you help us to look past the miracle of water to wine? And would you help us to see the sign that points to your glory? And for those of us that follow you, would you help us to get out of the boring routine that we're in and to live in the joy that you've provided for us? Would you help us to set our eyes on the day that you will return to make all things right, all things new? But I pray for my friends I pray for my friends, friends that are on the fence with you. They've got all kinds of questions. That's, that's okay. Holy Spirit, would you draw them to Jesus? Would you help them to open it to receive the invitation by faith that they would be made right, they would be made new, they would let go of the old way, they would embrace this new way that leads to eternity in you, Jesus. We love you and we praise you and we sing to you right now. It's in your name we pray, amen.